I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There is such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast Playlist can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In the fall of 2022, the human race entered unprecedented territory. The world's population has touched 8 billion today. That's according to the United Nations. It's a big number and it will get bigger in the coming years. Current estimates predict that the global population will reach nearly 10.5 billion people in 60 years. How many new people are we adding to the planet every year? The population of Germany, so about 80 million plus people every year. I think the human species overall would be a lot better off if we were somewhere between 3 and 4 billion than the number of people on this planet right now. To have an infinitely growing population of humans and an infinitely growing economy poses insuperable barriers. That's really driving us to collapse. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed, and I'm joined now by contributor Bruce Lipsy. Bruce, when you asked that question a moment ago about how many people we're adding to the planet each year, about 80 million, you're implying that the world is overpopulated. But it's a contested idea. So let me ask you directly, why do you believe that it's overpopulated? I mean, I think the answer is clear that we do have too many people if we want to solve problems like the climate change crisis and other mounting environmental problems, and if we want to avoid conflicts over dwindling resources, and we want people to enjoy the same standard of living that we in the West have in other parts of the world. Let me lay out a bit of math to illustrate what I mean. Sure. Back in 1988, NASA climate scientists like Dr. James Hansen testified before Congress. Altogether... This evidence represents a very strong case, in my opinion, that the greenhouse effect has been detected and it is changing our climate now. So 35 years ago, NASA had discovered that global warming was no longer a theory but reality. At that time, there were 5 billion people on the planet and annual carbon emissions were around 22 billion tons. But in 2022, last year, we reached 8 billion people and produced a record high of almost 38 billion tons of CO2 emissions. That's an increase of nearly 16 billion tons of emissions over 1988 levels. So presumably the increase in population corresponds directly to the increase in CO2 emissions. Yes, because each person on the planet has a carbon footprint. So logically, the more people, the more carbon footprints, and hence more CO2 emissions. Which is why global climate treaties keep failing, in my view. And the emissions keep going up and up. Bruce, that term overpopulation, it's an incendiary term. And yet, you've put it in the title of this documentary. Yes, there's no question. In some circles, the word overpopulation is forbidden. Uh, Absolutely. In fact, as I discovered preparing this documentary, almost no one wants to talk about the issue of overpopulation or even population growth. So I put that very issue before one of the people I spoke with, Thomas Homer Dixon. He's executive director of the Cascade Institute at the Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia. 
there's been kind of an alliance between the right and the left not to talk about it because the left thinks that the issue is just a device for various forms of systemic racism to be perpetuated within societies and globally to sustain the current dominant economic structure. And the right thinks that if you just let markets rip and human ingenuity stimulated by those markets flow, then human beings can respond to all of the challenges that population growth might be contributing to, whether it's concerns about food shortages or climate change or deforestation or land degradation and the like. So that alliance between the left and the right has basically made it very difficult to raise the population issue in a way that isn't simply a caricature. And yet it's impossible not to notice that population levels are a problem if you live in any large city anywhere in the world. Back in 2019, I was on a reporting trip to Hong Kong, one of the world's most densely populated cities. It has 7.7 million people in it. That means it has 7,100 people per kilometer compared to 4,300 in Toronto and 5,600 in London. Not surprisingly, Hong Kong has a severe housing crisis with more than 220,000 people living in so-called caged, coffin, or subdivided apartments. One day I went to Kowloon, a packed area of apartment buildings, office towers, and shopping centers. I was shown what is called a caged apartment. What they do is take an ordinary sized apartment and fill them with cages or wooden boxes, each about the size of a large refrigerator. As many of these cages or boxes are then stuffed into the apartment with someone sleeping and living in each one. In this case, I entered a room with 15 caged units, either stacked on top of each other or bolted to the ceiling. Most of the tenants were men, some elderly, with all of their worldly possessions crammed into these boxes. The room was crowded, dark, noisy and rodent infested. They all shared one toilet and a small kitchen. Problems associated with population growth are also being felt where I live in Toronto. Every year, almost 100,000 new people move to the city. At least partly as a result, Toronto has soaring housing prices and rents, a serious housing shortage, a growing homeless crisis, and relentless gridlock, which is pretty much the case in most Canadian cities now. It's time to face the facts. We have a housing crisis in Canada. The supply of homes to own as well as to rent is not keeping up with our growing population. I think the key underlying variable that's, that sort of binds all of these conversations together is the problem of the energy supply. I am Thomas Homer Dixon, Executive Director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University. So a growing population, especially as the society that encompasses that population becomes more complex, requires more energy, of course. High-quality energy to maintain its complexity, to provide for the basic needs of the people, but also to ma- maintain the social and institutional complexity, the connectivity, the transportation networks, the food delivery systems throughout the society. And until the Industrial Revolution, until the fossil fuel revolution, 
that energy was always obtained from food and from fodder, fodder for draft animals and uh, food, grain, and otherwise for human beings, human consumption. In other words, it was, it was energy that was captured by the sun uh, through photosynthesis, the growth of woody plants, for example, or fodder, and then converted by metabolic processes into muscle power, uh, either in draft animals or human beings. So plants provided food for people and animals, which, in turn, used their muscle power to carry out work. Yet muscle power has limitations, and meant most people lived at a subsistence level on the land. Up to the time of the Industrial Revolution, say, England during the 18th century, the first Industrial Revolution, the, the uh, largest or the highest ratio of urban population to total population in the world was usually about 7 to 8%. In other words, there were very few, very rare civilizations that were able to have more than 7 to 8% of their population in cities. And that's because cities are fundamentally parasitic on the countryside in approximate solar civilization. They require uh, all the people in the cities aren't producing food, aren't producing calories for consumption, and so they require the extraction of those calories from the countryside. The story of ancient Rome is a story of evolution, of how a civilization's ability to adapt and dominate can lead to its survival for over a thousand years. The story of Rome, I and other scholars have argued, is really a story about energy. It's a story about the empire's constant attempts to capture enough proximate solar energy in the form of food, fodder, and fuel to sustain its population and to uh, sustain its complexity as an expanding civilization. It couldn't capture fundamentally enough calories from the territory that it was occupying to, to sustain its population and the complexity of its civilization, which ultimately made it vulnerable to attack and disintegration. Relying mainly on human labor meant population growth was incremental. In the thousand years between 800 AD and 1800, the global population grew from 240 million people to just less than 1 billion people. And life expectancy in Europe prior to the 1800s hovered between 30 to 40 years. Still, even back then, some people were worried about overpopulation. Thomas Malthus posited that population growth would tend to outrun agricultural production and that this would lead to various forms of calamity, uh, starvation, social breakdown, war. Thomas Malthus was a British economist who in 1789 wrote a treatise called An Essay on the Principle of Population. The constant effort towards population, which is found to act even in the most vicious societies, increases the number of people before the means of subsistence are increased. The food, therefore, which before supported seven millions, must now be divided among seven millions and a half, or eight millions. The poor, consequently, must live much worse, and many of them be reduced to severe distress. There was this difference, he pointed out, between exponential growth of the population and the linear growth of agricultural production. And that would tend to lead to basically starvation in a society. He was wrong in significant parts for the time, 
I think the story still has to be told as to whether he's going to be wrong over the larger arc of human history. What Malthus failed to predict were innovations in farming that would increase food production while populations were also growing. First of all, there's just the obvious pathway of the mechanization of agriculture, the application of, for instance, tractors and machinery, uh, water pumps for irrigation. Malthus also didn't foresee how the exploitation of fossil fuels would radically alter the course of human history and population growth. Fossil fuels pack an enormous energy punch. By 1900, coal was the primary industrial fuel, which has three times the energy density of wood. The Aztecs discovered you could burn coal. They used it for fuel. The Chinese made the same discovery. Greeks and Romans used it to forge metal. And then, 1760, the steam engine, the Industrial Revolution, mining, spinning, milling, international travel, warm buildings. Coal became the fuel for ships and locomotives. Oil was next. The first commercial oil well in the U.S. went into production in 1859, and oil was soon powering automobiles. It was during the decades following World War II that oil consumption reached its apex. As America entered the 1950s, the nation's reliance on oil had grown from a necessity to an addiction. By 1964, oil had overtaken coal to become the world's largest energy source, and for good reason. As a liquid rather than a solid, it allowed for the development of the internal combustion engine. Today, 80% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels and is the lifeblood of the global economy. We rely on them not only for generating electricity and transportation, but for chemicals, clothes and plastics, and fertilizers in particular nitrogen-based fertilizer. Most people understand that during the 19th century and before, one of the fundamental limits to increased agricultural production was the availability of nitrogen to the plants in in our, our farmers' fields. Fossil fuels and new agricultural technologies meant fewer people were needed to live on the land, so many moved to cities. Fossil fuels led to better and more consistent nutrition, public health infrastructures, and access to medical care, all of which led to dramatically lengthened lifespans and a population explosion. By 1900, the total number of people in the world shot up to 1.6 billion. By 1950, it was 2.5 billion. And by 1968, 3.5 billion. Population growth will kill you stone cold dead if we continue to let population grow, and if we continue to exploit the underdeveloped countries, if we continue to pollute the seas uh, with a wide variety of compounds and so on, it's very difficult for me to picture things holding together for more than another decade or so. In the late 1960s, Stanford University biologist Paul Ehrlich and his wife Anne published a book called The Population Bomb, picking up the thread left by Thomas Malthus. Like Malthus, Ehrlich worried that food supply and the world's biosphere could not sustain the growing population. The basic point is so simple. We have a finite planet with finite resources, and in such a system, you can't have infinite population growth. And Ehrlich predicted hundreds of millions would be starving to death in the 1970s. Was Ehrlich right or wrong? Possibly. He and his wife were possibly ahead of their time, and I don't think they chose the title the population bomb. I think that was their publisher. So you could say that it was hyperbolic at the time. 
My name is Robin Maynard. I'm Executive Director of Population Matters, which is a charity based in the UK, but operating globally. And we're seeking through positive, progressive, non-coercive means to achieve a more stable, sustainable population over time for the greater well-being of people and planet. The issue around food, because we've had the green revolution in that you know, in the intervening period where we've increased the yields of crops dramatically. But the father of the Green Revolution, um, a professor called Norman Borlaug, at the time when he received his Nobel Peace Prize in the sort of, I think, sort of 70s, 80s, said, well, actually, all I've done is create a breathing space for humanity through these incredibly uh, productive, high-yielding crops. I've created a breathing space for us to get our human population in balance with our resources. And what we're seeing now is that we're heading for a massive food gap. And the, the uh, World Bank, World Resources Institute estimated that we're going to have about a 56% um, food gap over the next 50 years plus. And actually the land that's required to feed the population that's projected, even the median projection of 10.4 billion by 2100, is about a billion hectares, which is one and a half times the size of the Amazon. Paul Ehrlich's concerns about population were influenced by a trip he'd made to India. That fact eventually led to allegations of racism, that he and other Westerners concerned about population often lived in wealthy developed countries, yet were pointing to growing populations in poorer nations as being cause for alarm. Critics of Ehrlich noted, rightly, that it's wealthy countries which consume by far most of the world's resources and energy. Those concerns about racism were raised again during the mid-1970s. All across India, men and women, single and married, young and old, with and without children, had been randomly rounded up from their homes. When India launched a mass sterilization campaign. They were taken to camps where sterilization procedures were carried out in crude and unhygienic conditions. Another country that tried to rein in its expanding population was China, which in 1979 implemented its one-child policy. So essentially, after the revolution, there's steady population growth. By the late 1970s, China's leadership becomes worried about the size of its population. Why? Well, because agricultural productivity was so poor, and they were having difficulties feeding the population. I'm Richard Smith, and I'm a researcher, and uh, I've written a couple of books. The most recent is China's Engine of Environmental Collapse. By the late 1970s, China had close to one billion people. How would you characterize the implementation of the one-child policy? Oh, very harsh. But they just put by fiat. They just said, you know, they have uh, block ladies, they call them, on, on, every, on every neighborhood who uh, controlled birth control directly by checking on all the women in their neighborhood to see if they were having regular periods, if they stopped having regular periods and they were in trouble if they had already one kid. So then they would force them to have an abortion. It was very coercive, very brutal policy. China's one-child policy is estimated to have resulted in 400 million people not being born. Although the country's population continued to climb and is more than 1.4 billion people today, the one-child policy was rescinded in 2016 as China was facing an aging and declining population. These harsh methods of population control shocked Western environmental organizations, to the point where the term overpopulation became something too freighted to talk about. And it fundamentally shifted the debate because 
a lot of people who were less concerned about population, but very concerned about issues of justice and fairness and equity and the coercion of less powerful groups within societies, saw exercises at fertility, at reducing fertility and at quote-unquote population control as basically forms of state coercion. Population growth has been largely removed from contemporary debates. It's almost a, a verboten topic. I think we, we created a Pandora box because we didn't discuss population growth in the right in the right way, right? And uh, and definitely, a, a, I did see a tone of racism in those years, and really the North pointing fingers at the South, which was growing faster. My name is Vanessa Perez-Sirera. I'm the Global Director for the Economic Center at World Resources Institute. And of course, the population that was coming, it, they, they, they were having the same aspirations as we we all, you know, if we have already, you know, had, a, had the opportunity to have essential needs plus, 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 why would any people in the, the southern world don't aspire for something similar, right? And so that created a little bit of a Pandora box when we talk about population. And I think now the, the debate and the narrative should be around how to ensure every citizen of the world to have basic needs and essential needs within the planetary boundaries. And that should be the conversation. And the conversation should be about overconsumption. That should be primarily the conversation. You're listening to Ideas and to a documentary by contributor Bruce Lifsey called Is Overpopulation Killing the Planet? Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. While population growth has so far not led to mass starvation or societal collapses, as some over the ages have predicted, we may not be able to dodge such catastrophes in the coming years. Bruce, if the dire warnings about overpopulation haven't actually led to our demise by now, why should we or anyone be concerned about population now? Well, there are two reasons. One is that the bill has finally come due on burning fossil fuels for nearly 200 years. And secondly, fossil fuels raised expectations among people in populous developing countries that they too can enjoy the same standard of living as those in wealthy countries. Developing nations with large populations with most people living primarily on the land produce very low carbon emissions. But as countries industrialize and urbanize, their reliance on fossil fuels grows. And our dependence on fossil fuels has a multiplying impact when more and more people are added to the planet. Overall, the average person on the Earth produces four tons of carbon per year. 
Yet the size of someone's carbon footprint varies depending on their standard of living and where they live. Africa has 17% of the world's population and 1.4 billion people, yet produces as a continent only 3.8% of the world's global emissions. A person living in Africa will, on average, produce carbon emissions of one metric ton per annum. How does that compare to more developed countries like Canada? An average Canadian produces about 15 times more than that, more than 15 tons of carbon, the same as an average American. And a wealthy person like Bill Gates, who flies around the world on private jets, he produces almost 7,500 tons of carbon every year. So the disparity in lifestyles between countries, on the one hand like the U.S. and Canada, and those in the developing world on the other, are largely due to our use of fossil fuels. And people in developing nations would obviously like to enjoy the benefits accrued by the use of fossil fuels as well. They want the lifestyles and the opportunities that we take for granted in our societies. Thomas Homer Dixon. And right now, the only real route for them to get there is to continue mobilizing, capturing and mobilizing and using a lot of fossil fuel energy. We don't see a clear route for the leapfrogging of these economies and these large populations over fossil fuel energy to some new kinds of technologies that are driven by renewable power. Those aren't in place yet. And that's really the fundamental dilemma that we're facing as a species. Overall, 50% of carbon emissions come from just 10% of the wealthiest global population, while the poorest half are responsible for only 12% of emissions. Quite rightly, many in the developing world will say, it is you in the developed world who started this revolution in terms of the use of fossil fuels. You know, so the majority of greenhouse gas emissions, which are causing current climate change, are the result of the European Industrial Revolution, North American, etc. So the industrialized nations are, are the key cause of that, for sure. But the rest of the world is catching up. Like China, which has moved from a poor agrarian country to the world's second largest economic superpower. Environmental researcher Richard Smith first visited China in 1991. When I was in Beijing, everybody rode bicycles and, and got around on buses, and you got around between between cities on trains. What's it like today? <laughs> well, oh, it's just horrible. Today, they've just banned bicycles almost everywhere, and they leveled cities left and right and just demolished the whole center of Beijing to build uh, new office buildings and put in freeways and ring roads connected to and cars, you know? So the, the country is just glutted with cars. It, they sell more, more cars in America. At the time of the 1949 communist revolution led by Mao Zedong, China had a population of 540 million people. And um, Mao had this idea, he proposed this bright idea, that uh, every mouth comes with two hands. Therefore, the more people, the more economic growth. But that was because in the 1950s, he didn't have much industry. And so he, what he had was a lot of labor. So they were trying to maximize the output of labor by having more labor. And they, that's how they mostly grew the economy in the 50s. They added more workers to industry and more um, uh, means of production for them to work with. So when it comes to fossil fuels, 
you know, oil and gas, coal. What what situation did China find itself in? Well, they didn't have much oil, and they had no gas that was reachable with the technology they had at the time in the 1950s. What China had, though, was lots of coal. Since the late 1980s, early 1990s, how has China's carbon emissions grown? Well, the carbon emission growth tracked the GDP. So as the economy has grown 10% a year, the, G, the carbon grew like 5 6% a year, uh, sometimes even more. Sometimes carbon even grew faster than the uh, rate of industrial GDP. Today, the emissions are composed 75% by coal, cement about 7%, oil 14%, gas 4%. That's 100% of the composition of the CO2 emissions. And today they produce how much of the world's carbon emissions? They produce a third of the world's carbon emissions, about 33%, according to a recent uh, uh, estimate, about 33% of the world's emissions, with about mm, under 20% of the world's population. Today, China's producing more than 11 billion tons of carbon annually. What's been the environmental impact within China itself? The emissions are really horrific. In the 19, by by 2013-14, the skies and you know the smog in in Beijing was so bad you couldn't see the person you were talking to, and when you're walking down the street, and it was really horrible. And I've been there in days like that, just like you just couldn't see anything. You just taste the air; it's horrible. Um, and um, but that's not the worst. The worst, in my view, is the pollution of soil and water from chemicals. Given that we have fossil fuel consuming technologies and we've had an extraordinary surge in uh, wealth generation around the planet and rising standards of living, uh, the population growth that we've had combined with those other things has produced a stunning increase in carbon emissions into the atmosphere. Consider this. In 1970, the world produced almost 15 billion tons of carbon. That number rose to 23 billion by 1990, and today it's around 37 billion tons. During that same time period, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere climbed from just over 325 parts per million in 1970 to 350 by 1990, and today is about 420, the highest in 14 million years. The uh, power of uh, human beings to uh, affect and uh control and change the environment is growing as our technology grows. And uh, at present time, we clearly have reached the stage where we are capable, both uh, intentionally and inadvertently, to uh, make significant changes in the global climate and in the global ecosystem. That was American scientist Carl Sagan testifying about climate change before a Senate hearing in 1985. And we've probably been doing uh, on a smaller scale, things like that, uh, for a very long period of time. Three years later, the United Nations set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to monitor and issue reports on global warming. And from the very beginning, the IPCC said population growth was a major driver of climate change. What has the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said about population growth and climate change? That's a really pertinent question. Because in its latest 22 report, the IPCC 
specifies that the two drivers of climate change are economic growth and population growth. And then you get, you know, crazy people like Elon Musk saying, oh, my God, the world population is collapsing. You know, this is going to be the end of civilization. Well, it isn't collapsing. Uh, it's a it's a very it's a you know, in fact, it's going to continue growing through 2050, probably up to the end of the century by another two and a half billion minimum, possibly more. The other aspect of sort of the north-south divide is uh, who will um, suffer the consequences of uh, climate change. Um, can you talk a bit about that? That that from what I understand is that again, um, people living in the developing world will suffer more so as the planet heats up than perhaps those living in the north. Well, that's a reality, and that's. Uh... But at present, who is carrying the, the biggest burdens of climate change? And of course, the biggest burdens of climate change are being borne by the countries in the South and the poorer countries in the world. Uh, one, because where they are located, so they're more sensitive for climate change impacts, but also because they have less resources to be able to cope uh, and be able to adapt to climate change uh, more effectively. So, of course, the African countries, Sub-Saharan Africa, will have a big impact. Of course, the small island states uh, will also have big impacts in several countries in Asia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, countries that are that have very um, low uh, slopes in their uh, territorial elevations will lose almost up to 30% of their territory. So who, who's going to pay for that? And these countries are the ones that are less responsible for climate change. The other thing, and you've touched upon this uh, in passing, is is migration, people leaving uh, parts of the world that have gotten hotter, where perhaps life and uh, drought or life has got more difficult. How much of sort of uh, people migrating from the south and attempting to come north to the cooler countries is going to be uh, a growing reality in the years ahead. I think it's a it's a big big reality already, and we see mass migration migrations from from Africa to 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 Europe, and 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 that will come uh, that will be more and more and more uh, frequent. But population growth is not only fueling the climate crisis. It's also reducing biodiversity levels worldwide. In 2019, scientists warned that 1 million species out of an estimated 8 million are threatened with extinction. Robin Maynard. Every two years, the Worldwide Fund for Nature and the Zoological Society of London publish something called the Living Planet Report, which is a, it's like a sort of um, stock take of biodiversity on our planet. To be honest, it would be better called the dying planet because for the past 10 years or so, all it's recorded is an ongoing decline in biodiversity. So its latest living planet report of 2022 um, gave an estimate of a 70% decline in wild populations over the past 50 or 60 years. As human populations grow, they require more land to produce crops to feed people and build homes which means bulldozing forests and wetlands and other habitats, polluting rivers and lakes and air. In the Amazon, farmers and ranchers have for decades been clear-cutting the rainforest to graze cattle and plant crops in order to feed the world's growing population. Throughout Africa, the clearing and burning of tropical forests is adding to greenhouse emissions. 
for every million extra people who come on the planet, alongside them come 10 million intensive livestock because there's still an awful lot of meat eaten, particularly in Southeast Asia, chicken and pig, big pig and poultry units. But to feed the 2.4 billion people projected at the median, so that's not even the, the highest, the highest projection, uh, but the median projection would result currently is that we we have 50 56% of a food gap from where we are now to 2050 2100 to feed those people that will require according to the UN and the World Bank 1 plus billion hectares of land and to put that in perspective that's 1.5 times the size of the amazon at the moment, the population that we have in the world is using up 70% of the world's land, right? And having around 30% of, of land, not necessarily intact, but conserved and providing ecosystem services. So you know that the forested areas in the world and the ocean uh, not only inhabit biodiversity, which is the source of life in the world and the source of seed uh, diversity and in uh, food and medicinal plants, et cetera, et cetera, but they're, they're actually the lungs of the world, right? It's, it's the places that sequester carbon dioxide, is the places that you uh, ensure that you produce soil actually for the the other places to produce agriculture and and they're the places that capture the water that will uh, be able to feed agriculture so unless we see this 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 big uh, forest basins of the world as really the the core places for life uh, in the world we're going to have a very partial view of what we need and so in the past only in the past half century, we have lost 20% of the Amazon. And, and the Amazon is about to reach a tipping point in which uh, we actually won't achieve the 1.5 or the 1.6 or the 1.7 degree target if we lose the, the Amazon with, with a bunch of other ecosystem services valuable to population. And so until we have our uh, the supermarkets void of diversity and foods. Possibly we're not going to be aware of the severity of the biodiversity crisis. Hopefully we can be aware of it before. With consumer capitalism, population growth is inextricably linked to having more labor to make more products and ever more consumers to buy them. Yet what happens when countries experience falling and aging populations, like Japan? With a population of nearly 125 million people, the country has seen its population drop by almost 3 million since 2008. What percentage of the population in Japan is over the age of 65? So the population above 65 is 29% of the total population. And are most of those workers working or not working or retired? Most of them are retired. The employment rate of uh, people above 65 years old is somewhere around 25%. Uh, my name is Keisuke Otsu. I'm a professor at Keio University in Tokyo. Um, and I specialize in macroeconomics, specifically business cycles and economic growth. And how rapidly is Japan's population declining? So the population decline is most notable in uh, the working age population. So the working age population uh, used to be around 80 million people or so in the 
1990s, but now that's somewhere around uh, 75 million people. One major reason for the decline is Japanese women are having fewer children. More and more females entered the labor market and had high-paying jobs. Uh, however, the corporate culture was still not ready to accept all these female workers in the following sense. So females will get married and uh, decide to have children. Uh, and as a corporate point of view, um, that's a negative because they will lose uh, a worker. Uh, and that's sort of uh, the way that uh, the Japanese corporate culture was. And that's also echoed in the, in the family structure as well. Um, in fact, if you take a look at the, the time use statistics, um, there's a huge gap between the male and the female when it comes to uh, household work uh, in terms of times, minutes. Japan remains the third largest economy in the world measured by GDP with an enviable standard of living. So is there evidence that its economy is in any way suffering from this demographic shift? So there are several issues um, related to population aging. First is the fact that uh, we're losing more and more working age population and uh, the share of retirees are, are increasing. That will reduce the per capita income because the workforce is, is declining. Now, even if we have many people in Japan and uh, the total GDP is, is high, uh, when you think about the per capita GDP, we're not doing so well. So part of the reason is because the number of workers is falling. Now, that's one of the big reasons why population aging is a huge pain. And uh, the decline in population is surely contributing to this. Some environmentalists who downplay the impact population growth has on climate change point to the burgeoning renewable clean energy sector, such as wind, solar, and hydropower, as weaning the planet off fossil fuels. The cost of renewable energy has indeed been falling. And once that weaning is complete, the threat of climate catastrophe will begin to abate. Around the world, renewable energy use is on the rise. And these alternative energy sources could hold the key to combating climate change. They also say that, again, those who say population really isn't an issue, it's all about consumption, and that we will wean ourselves off fossil fuels, we'll move to renewable energy like, like solar, wind, nuclear. And again, so we shouldn't worry about population growth. Well, they might say that, but they are fundamentally... If that's, this, if that's the argument in toto, that's everything they say, then they're, they're fundamentally ignorant of the material constraints in which we're operating. We cannot run modern industrial civilization on wind and solar power by themselves. Now, we might be able to do it with wind and solar and a huge build-out of nuclear, but there are a lot of consequences to building out nuclear in large large quantities with respect to waste disposal, nuclear proliferation problems, etc. So the fundamental problem here for the two principal sources of renewable electricity that are on the table right now, so this is PV solar, photovoltaic solar, and wind power, is something called power density. Power density is the amount of power you generate per unit of surface area. 
number of watts you generate per unit of surface area that that power system or that energy system covers on the surface of the planet. And that's a really fundamental figure, fundamental material constraint. And that means that to generate the power for a civilization like Canada, a society or an economy like Canada or the United States or Western Europe, you need to cover enormous swaths of territory on land or on the ocean with these forms of energy generation. You take a tower in downtown Toronto, for example. Its consumption power density can be up to 5,000 watts per square meter. So if you're getting, say, 10 watts per square meter from your PV solar or from your wind, then you have to to power one square meter of that skyscraper in downtown Toronto. You need 500 square meters of PV solar or wind somewhere out in the countryside, covering potentially agricultural land. So this is a fundamental constraint. The real problem with solar and wind is power density. And we haven't cracked that issue yet. So in the absence of those solutions to our fundamental energy problem, we're going to be reliant upon fossil fuels. We're going to continue to be reliant upon fossil fuels. And the transition is going to be much harder. Robin Maynard. There was a very interesting study I saw from an Indian academic looking at the deployment of renewable energy in, in, in Asia. And his conclusion was that whilst there had been a rapid deployment of particularly uh, solar energy, the benefits from, from renewables were being eroded by the population growth. So it's like you're sort of, you're, you're running to, 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 to catch up. And, and as the population growth increases, the benefits of solar power, et cetera, et cetera, are, are diminished. So we have to address both. We have to address our consumption, our use of resources, and our population growth. In Europe, there's been a large cut in CO2 emissions, but those have been offset by increases from regions with growing populations. So we keep missing these emission targets that uh, for, for the last 30-odd uh, years we've been attempting to meet. How does having 8 billion people on the planet factor into our failure to stop global warming? It just makes the problem a lot harder. If we had 3 billion people on the planet, rather than 8 going on to 9 or 10, then we would have more room, uh, more time and more room for getting our carbon dioxide emissions down. If we had 3 billion people on the planet emitting on a per capita basis what we're emitting right now, then our emissions, our total emissions of carbon dioxide would be 40%, basically, roughly, of what, we, of what we're emitting right now. And, uh, and that would give us extra time and room to make the kind of energy transition that we have to go through. Still, some countries have moved to balance concerns over population growth with concerns over the environment. Countries like Costa Rica. In Costa Rica, working with the government, local church leaders, ecologists, conservationists, foresters, women's leaders developed a progressive family planning policy which enabled um, women to choose how many kids they've had. Uh, they've reduced their fertility rate to below two. Their foresters' cover has been restored by sort of 50%, and their GDP has increased about $12,000 per head. They're also now known to be the happiest country in the world, according to the Happiness Index. 
Costa Rica is actually a, a great case for discussion because if you think about development, not necessarily in terms of GDP, but actually development in terms of ensuring all of the population's social rights plus a healthy environment, Costa Rica is one of the places where you have all of the population having those social rights met while having a very low carbon and, and, and ecological footprint. So that's exactly the type of relationship that you should have, right? So people living, having well-being, being happy, and then having a very low impact on the, on the planet. So what's the solution to population growth? There's a sweeping evidence across the world that educating women and giving them equal rights to uh, social services, etc., is one of the most effective ways. And even, you know, in ensuring effective access to microcredits or financial inclusion more, more generally. And, uh, and of course, we start by having equal access to health, right, and having uh, education. So definitely that is one of the key enablers to slow down population growth. So, for example, access to uh, family planning, abortion rights, things like that. Completely, completely, yeah. Enabling women to choose and have access to safe modern family planning. 270 million women in the world don't. Uh, and it would be that would be easy to address. That's, that would only cost $70 billion dollars by 2030, which is a th less than a third of Elon Musk's personal fortune. So you could do that just like that. So that would make life a lot better for hundreds of millions of girls, you know, who are not in school and who are getting married off as children. So there's some very straightforward things we can do. But the key is reducing infant mortality and enabling women then to choose to have smaller families. Then you enable them to be economically active and active in their community and entrepreneurial, it also makes them more capable of reacting positively in terms of ecological challenges, particularly climate change. What do you think our fate may be if population growth is not curbed in some respect? If we basically continue with something like business as usual, and the population of the planet expands towards 10 billion people, and business as usual with current energy technologies and aspirations for economic growth and higher levels of consumption in, in societies around the world, then I don't think there's any question you're going to start to see widespread societal instability and collapse towards the end of this century. If for no other reason that temperatures are going to rise to a point that it's actually going to be very hard to grow food for 10 billion people on the planet. Increasingly, climate scientists are concerned about what they call simultaneous breadbasket failures, that we could have circumstances, and this could unfold easily within this particular decade of the 20s, where two or three major food producing areas in the world, in Europe, in Australia, perhaps in Ukraine or North America, encounter extreme weather, drought, major storms and the like, that reduces their yield substantially. And then we have a, a massive food shock through the highly connected global food system. And I think those kinds of events are going to become, if we continue on the current trajectory, much more common as the century unfolds. We're starting to see some sort of harbingers of these things with the food price instability we've seen over the last year, partly as a result of climate change, combining with the restrictions from the Ukraine-Russia war. Those things are going to become much more common. 
And there's nothing that stimulates social and civil unrest faster than unavailability of food. So if we continue on this course, the course that we're continuing on right now, we're going to have a period of time later in the century of enormous instability, violence, and war that, uh, that will, I think, among other things, make it very difficult for anything like liberal democracy to sustain itself. I think the planet will deal with us. The planet is already showing that it's finding us hard to sustain. So the climate is turning against us. Our water sources are proving vulnerable. Other species are disappearing, dying off. They're sort of exiting the planet because of us. So we are making this planet increasingly harder for sustaining us as a species, ultimately. So I think it's more likely the planet will become uninhabitable for us than the planet will become entirely uninhabitable for something that succeeds us. But my greatest ambition is to try and make the future better for my girls and future generations of children, because I think there's, there is a great deal of hope in the you know, regeneration of the, of the environment. But it also requires us to look at our, at our own species, and we can do it. No one has a higher uh, right to be in the world and consume more resources than another. And so that is exactly the world that we should be striving for, a world of equal opportunities and staying within the planetary boundaries. In informing ourselves in terms of the state of the world, the planetary crisis, the biodiversity crisis, which very few people know the severity of that, and really having a more harmonious and moral relationship with the eight other million species that inhabit and share the world with us. You're listening to Ideas and to a documentary by contributor Bruce Lifsey titled, Is Overpopulation Killing the Planet? For more on population issues, you can go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. And while you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter and get our podcast. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Nikola Lukšić is the senior producer. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.